Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning, Red Sea Catholic Radio listeners. This is your second week of the month host, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski. I'm also the Director of Education and Development for the Red Sea Apostolate. I'm so glad to be with you this morning. You're listening to Red Sea Roundup on Red Sea Catholic Radio, KEDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley. KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas and KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine. We've got a live interview for you coming up in the second part of the show. You can be a part of that if you call in at 85 Love Red Sea. 855-683-7332. Some of you out there who are listening that are a part of our Vatican II documents study might be especially interested to call in. We're going to be talking with Dr. Richard DeClue. He is with the Word on Fire Institute. He's a specialist in Joseph Ratzinger. We're going to be discussing Dei Verbum and Lumen Gentium, two of the important documents from the Second Vatican Council. As you know, this year is the 60th anniversary of the opening of the Second Vatican Council, and we are making that one of our focuses, one of our foci Mm -hmm. here at Red Sea Apostolate, helping people to learn and know and love the Second Vatican Council more, and and especially what it really taught, right, Dennis? Well, and also what it didn't teach or what it didn't say. Yeah, so howdy. Good morning, Thaddeus. Yeah, I'm enjoying the class very much, and uh, I've heard great things from Deacon Mike's class as well. So uh, we're looking to continue to have those throughout the year in Central Texas as well. So Mm -hmm. keep your ear tuned to Red Sea Catholic Radio to hear about that opportunity to study the Vatican II documents. Yeah, so pay pay attention for uh, this spring, another round of that document study uh, to be initiated here in the Brazos Valley and in Central Texas. And then in the fall, we're going to be reading Father Blake Britton's new book, Reclaiming Vatican II, and we'll do a study around that. So stay tuned for that too. You know, I've made an attempt to uh, read the documents on my own, and uh, it, it it was not very successful <laughs> at all. I tried to highlight, I tried to understand, but really being able to read, come back, just a portion of it, come back to a group setting and to discuss it is very helpful. It's also very helpful with the tools that you brought about uh, that started this whole Vatican II is the specific book. Yeah, we're really, we, we really thankful. I think everyone has enjoyed the fact that we're reading uh, Word on Fire's Vatican II collection that has excerpts from the writings of the popes that go along with, they're kind of interspersed with the, the document mm-hmm. itself. And then you also have really helpful commentary from Bishop Barron to, to explain um the important uh, parts of the document. So it's it's been wonderful to have that. Really enjoyed having everyone in the classes that have participated, and we hope more people um, make time to do that this spring. Mm-hmm. So 
It's a rainy day here in College Station. I assume it's somewhat similar weather in the other parts of our listening area. Kind of makes you uh, get ready for the key time of this Holy Week, and that's the beginning of tri- of the Triduum. We're on Spy Wednesday. Why today. is this called Spy Wednesday? Yeah. Let me know that because I don't know. <laughs> I learned about <laughs> this being Spy Wednesday uh, maybe five or five or six years ago. Um, this is because the readings for uh, the Daily Mass today are always about one of the accounts in the Synoptic Gospels about Judas deciding mm. to betray our Lord. So that's Matthew 26, 12 through 14, Mark 14, 10 through 12, and Luke chapter 22, 3 through 6. Um, it's interesting that in Matthew's gospel, we learn this. Then one of the 12, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time on, he looked for an opportunity to hand him over. Mm-hmm. Now, Dennis, do you know what the significance of 30 pieces of silver is? Uh, once again, I do not. <laughs> I've heard it before, but I do not remember. So yeah, certainly it's entered into our cultural lexicon as uh, you know, being paid to betray or blood money. Um, in the book of Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, you have this verse, and they weighed out as my wages 30 shekels of silver. Then the Lord said to me, cast it into the treasury, the lordly price at which I was paid off by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and cast them into the treasury in the house of the Lord. Hmm. 30 pieces of silver is the price of a slave in Jewish culture. Hmm. So why now, why is Judas enslaving himself or to whom is Judas enslaving himself? Well, We go to the Gospel of Luke, we read this. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, was drawing near, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking a way to put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, Mm -hmm. the one surnamed Iscariot, who was counted among the twelve. So it's interesting. We get in Matthew, we get the amount of money, 30 30 pieces of silver. In Luke, we don't get the 30 pieces of silver specifically. It says they were pleased and agreed to pay him money, but we learn that Satan entered into Judas. So Judas is enslaving himself to Satan, Satan, right? He's, He's doing the work of Satan rather than the work of the master. And I found this really interesting, um, piece in the register from a couple of years ago, uh, Matthew Bunsen, he pointed out, Dennis, that Judas Mm -hmm. never refers to Christ as Lord. He always calls him rabbi. Mm. And Bunsen makes the point that Judas always saw him, I'm quoting from him, he saw him as a teacher and seems to never have developed a belief in Jesus as the Christ. His faith was still shallow. He journeyed with Jesus, heard him teach, and saw the miracles, and still his faith was meager. Hmm. So I think 
Spy Wednesday has become, for me, kind of the beginning, the real beginning of Holy Week for me. And I think it's a really tough day because it forces us to look about and, and, and meditate about we're going, we're going to mass regularly. We're around our Catholic faith. We maybe are living in a, a, a Catholic sort of um, culture locally. We're, we're seeing the miracles. Yeah, we're seeing the miracle, the miracle of the Eucharist on, on the altar. But are we being transformed? Are we having that encounter with Christ? Do we call him rabbi or we, do we really believe that he is Lord? Thoughts? Are you you're looking at me? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a struggle. I think we all have. Yeah. And so I think we all could stand to deepen our relationship with the Lord. And so, you know, I guess my thoughts are what if you have a great relationship, but you don't have all the, as they say, the feels, you know? So you just have to uh, keep plugging on. Mm-hmm. And and I guess if you, you compare that to relationships you have in your human life with your spouse or your family members, sometimes you don't have, have what it takes, what it feels right, but you continue on in love. Yeah. And so that yeah. act of the will to, to want yeah. the good for the other person, you, you keep that commitment, you keep on journeying mm-hmm. and you, you don't give up and give in. So keep trucking on folks. Spy Wednesday, spy Wednesday. Hmm. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Uh, we got about five minutes left here in the first part of the show before we bring you an interview, a live interview mm-hmm. with Richard DeClue about uh, some of the documents of the Second Vatican Council. Again, call in at 85 Love Red Sea in the second part, 855-683-7332. But we've got some exciting things on the docket to tell you about coming Man. up here at the end of the month once once we're in the beginnings of Easter season. Mm-hmm. And what we want to start off with telling you about is there's still room, although it's, it's shrinking. shrinking fast, uh, for our very first Victory Sports Clinic, our very first, first Victory Sports event, a girls volleyball clinic, St. Anthony's Gym, April 23rd, April 23rd. From 1.30 to 4, girls ages 6 to 12, you're going to get great instruction from a division, former Division I volleyball coach, former Olympic volleyball coach, our coordinator, Robin Romanski. Mm-hmm. She'll be running that clinic. It's going to be focused around the theme of trust, trusting our fundamentals, trusting our teammates. And that is going to set the stage for or kind of live out in a in a bodily way how we need to trust in Jesus because it's the the vigil of divine mercy mm-hmm. sunday Jesus I trust in you so we're going to be working on working on trust at that at that clinic and we really urge and you to come skills. out and skills <laughs> you know you got to trust in your skills you know what's exciting is that i i was thinking about this the other day and this isn't just a one time hey let's get together for a clinic and provide a one this is the launch yes of the whole program yes which is going to continue on year round for all sports uh, multiple clinics, then we're going to have camps, and then we're going to have seasons. Mm-hmm. And this is going to spread beyond our, our Brazos Valley. Uh, I'm, I'm certain of it. The, God has shown us that uh, this is destined to grow. And So, so ask yourself, exciting. do you want to be present at the creation? Do you want to be 
yeah. present at the Genesis? Well, the thing too is that if, even if you don't have a daughter that's of, of that age, six Great to 12, segue, Dennis. we have the opportunity for all families, all ages to come to our kickoff, which mm-hmm. is right after the 5 p.m. mass that same day, April, April 23rd. It's a Saturday. You're invited to come to St. Anthony's if you would like for the 5 p.m. Mass. But at 6.15, following that Mass, we're going to have over in the gym area, we're going to have food and some games and fellowship, followed by a great kickoff concert Mm -hmm. by Michael James Meddy. And he is not well-known around our areas, but he is extremely talented, and we're determined to make him well-known because And he's played nationally. He plays nationally at Catholic events, Catholic parishes. Yeah. And it's got a great sound, kind I of think, a kind of a alternative uh, slash rock and roll sound. Well, it's, a, it's a good pop contemporary yeah, Christian sound. Contemporary and I think pop sound. People of all ages would love his music, and so we feature it quite a bit, off and on in in our shows or in our our bumper music because mm-hmm. he's given us permission to do that. But uh, he's very talented. Brings his family. It's going to be very intimate in the St. Anthony's gym. We're going to set up some chairs and and tables and other just just. It's a great opportunity to come enjoy with other families the launch of Victory Sports. So please, we, even if you're not involved in the clinic, we want you to come to the kickoff. Yeah, so if you if you want to get involved in the clinic and send your daughter to the clinic, go to victoryyouthsports.org, victoryyouthsports.org, and register there, $25 per child. And then regardless, come to the kickoff event that evening Starting at uh, 6 p.m., come to 5 o'clock Mass at St. Anthony's if you want to. And then, real quickly, we got about a minute and a half. May 7th, May 7th, we're going to have mm-hmm. girls' basketball clinic and boys' basketball clinic at St. Joseph's High School Gym, May 7th. The registration for that will open probably after the volleyball clinic registration finishes. So stay tuned for that. And then May 14th, May 14th, we're going to have a boys' flag football clinic. We're still working out between two places where okay. we're going to have that clinic, but that's May 14th, boys' flag football clinic. It's exciting times. Like we said, this is just the launch of some really big stuff that's going on. So we want your involvement. Like I said, if you can't come to the clinic or involve your kids because they're a little bit older than that age or, or uh, you know, we have you have all boys, uh, you have more stuff coming up, but we have the kickoff and it's going to be great food, fun and fellowship and great music. Mm-hmm. So indeed, April 23rd, Victory Sports, VictoryYouthSports.org. Go, re- go register. So we're coming back right after this break. Red Sea Roundup. Get a clue with Richard DeClue. Woohoo! Okay, welcome back to Red Sea Roundup. This is your host, Dr. Thaddeus Romanski. You're listening on the app, possibly. You might be listening over our streaming on our website, redsearadio.org. 
Or you might be listening at KEDC 88.5 FM in the Brazos Valley, KYAR 98.3 FM in Central Texas, or KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine, as I like to say, the Holy Land of Texas, regardless of where you're listening. If you'd like to call in and talk to our guest, Dr. Richard DeClue, call in at 85-LOVE-RED-C, 855-683-7332, and ask him a question about the Second Vatican Council, Dave Verbum, Lumen Gentium. I'm looking at you, participants in our Vatican II document study. Um, welcome, Richard DeClue. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, Richard is the Cardinal Henri de Lubac, I love saying that, Henri de Lubac, Fellow of Theology at the Word on Fire Institute in in Dallas, I believe. He earned his Doctor of Sacred Theology from the Catholic University of America, and we are thrilled to have him on today to talk about all things Second Vatican Council, but specifically the documents De Verbum and Lumen Gentium. Um, now, Richard, you you had quite the journey to that to that doctorate and then the institute, didn't you? Um, can you tell us about how you ended up there? And um, didn't that journey involve Porsches at some point? Yes, yes, it did. I still love the brand. Um, <laughs> so in college, I was originally a pre-veterinary medicine major and biology major with a minor in chemistry. And eventually I transferred to Belmont Abbey College where I mm. switched my major to theology. Oh, that's quite a switch. And yeah, it is. And I still enjoyed the sciences, and I still do. I'm actually certified to teach high school science as well. So um, faith and reason are not opposed. You are living proof of that. Yes. As a matter of fact, my study of science has only confirmed my faith. Exactly. So, um, I basically decided that I just, instead of, I realized that in science I was asking how things worked, and really I was more wondering why Mm. Um, questions of why and ultimate meaning. Mm-hmm. So I ended up switching my major and graduated from there and then went to Boston College for one year of master's work before transferring over to the ecclesiastical degrees programs at the Catholic University of America. So I did uh, three graduate degrees there, the SDB, STL, and the Doctor of Sacred Theology. The STL and the doctorate are both in the area of systematic theology. Um so while I was working on the final corrections to my doctoral dissertation, I took a job selling luxury vehicles at a Jaguar, Land Rover, Porsche, and Volvo dealership. That is so awesome, I, man. Yeah, I sold all four brands. I originally started out mainly in the Volvo showroom and then was switched over to the um, the Porsche showroom. So I was primarily a Porsche salesman. How many, you know, how many test drives did you get to go on or did, was that something that was a, kind of <laughs> a, a perk of your job? Yes. And I also got to go to some Porsche training um, where they taught us about some of the vehicles. Like when the, the new generation of the 911 came out, the, which is known as the 992, um, I got to go out to Utah and do a three day training where we got to drive it on the track. Oh, wow. Um, drive drive some of the competitor vehicles and compare them and learn a, learned a lot about electrification as well as they were preparing to roll out the all electric Tycon. That's so, so I got to do, that's so neat. I got to do training on the Tycon as well. And that, that was amazing. Wow. Now I've been, I don't want it to sound like I've been stalking you or something, but I just, you know, tried to learn about 
you know, your background and, and I was a f- an early fan of your YouTube channel, uh, DeClue's Views. And I noticed that you, you, you also used to do reviews on um, fountain <laughs> pens, right? Fountains. That's yeah. kind of a hobby. Is that a, is that a hobby of yours? I did. It just kind of developed randomly. I was, I had been given a, when my sister got married, um, they gave me a, a pen for, as a gift and as for being like one of the groomsmen. And um, many, many years later, I was like, you know what? I really would like to get a nice pen. Maybe I'll get one of those old fashioned fountain pens. And mm. I thought that might help me write more. <laughs> and, uh, I went down a rabbit hole and never quite dug myself out. And so now I've got quite a collection of fountain pens. And I used to make these horrible videos going over the writing experience <laughs> of different fountain pens. And um, that was actually how my channel started. And then I switched to doing more theological topics. Yeah, it's 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 pretty neat. Now, I confess, I never watched any of the, the fountain pen videos, so I couldn't comment on if they were bad or not. But I just I thought that was remarkable that, you know, you're if you look at the videos on that channel, it's it's all these fountain pen videos. And then bam, we're, now we're doing theology. <laughs> now we're doing systematic theology. It was, it was pretty neat. Yep. Pretty neat to see. Well, um, I mentioned at the outset and we're talking to Richard DeClue. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Second Vatican Council today. Uh, in various ways, but I mentioned that he is the Cardinal Henri de Lubac Fellow of Theology at the Word on Fire Institute. Um, briefly tell people about what the Institute is, rather more than just you know, Word on Fire. Most people know that. Uh, and who is or who was Cardinal Henri de Lubac? Why is he important to understanding the, the Second Vatican Council? Okay, well, first, the Word on Fire Institute, of course, is a segment within the Word on Fire Catholic Ministries umbrella. It was founded um, a few years ago um, to sort of start offering a little bit higher level, slightly more academic resources for um, people interested in the Word on Fire Ministries. And so we offer, it's a membership-based organization, so you can sign up online. And I believe right now for the next three and a half days or so, they're still doing a free 30 day trial. If you sign up Hmm. within the next three and a half day period. Um, And you get basically access to all of the courses from various fellows. Some are full-time fellows, some are adjunct fellows, meaning they're professors at other universities and they, they do courses for us Mm -hmm. to get access to all of those. You get access to all of word on fire, digital content, which includes like Bishop Barron's Catholicism series. Um, and you also get a quarterly journal called Evangelization and Culture, and it's a gorgeous journal. I mean, it's, you know, one of our core principles is to lead with beauty, and they do a phenomenal job creating these beautiful journals with n- not just solid content, but also the artwork that goes into it and the layout. It's, it's really a beautiful thing. Um, so we've got that, and um, we also do like um, symposia or different conferences and stuff. Like we've been doing some stuff with faith and science Mm -hmm. through a grant from the Templeton foundation. Mm -hmm. Um, So we do a lot of stuff like that. And it's, there's also the opportunity if you're a member to engage in discussions online, um, written um, discussions online with other members of the community. And it's, it's growing rapidly, and it's, it's a great institute, a lot of great um, resources 
available. I will uh, admit that I am a member of the the Institute, and so I did get, uh, I have a copy of the Evangelization and Culture Journal, uh, the most recent one. You just wrote a piece for it called Last Things First, and if if we can delay a little bit more talking about the Second Vatican Council and uh, Henri de Lubach, maybe we'll, I'll ask you a question about that piece too, but who is, who is Cardinal de Lubach? So Henri de Lubach is a French Jesuit. He was born in 1896. He died in 1991. And he was injured in World War I, had a head injury that bothered him with nasty headaches the rest of his life. But he was a very prolific scholar and um, influenced a lot of people, including John Paul II and um, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. And de Lubach was one of the co-founders, along with Ratzinger and von Balthasar and others, um, of the journal Communio, which is an international journal published in many different languages throughout the world. And he had a tremendous impact in 20th century Catholic theology. Um, I think his best work is probably in the area of Eucharistic ecclesiology, so his understanding of the, ch- of the Church in, through the lens of the Eucharist. Um, but he's probably most well-known for his take on nature and grace, which was a highly debated topic in the early 20th century and continues to be somewhat contentious today, but is, it's sort of calmed down. People aren't as—they <laughs> still have disagreements, but they're not quite so you know, negative towards each other anymore which is a good thing. But yeah, that's nice was, that we're not throwing chairs at each other anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, so before Vatican II started, because it was announced in 1959 that it would that the Pope was calling a council. And then in 1960, de Lubach was made a consultor for the Preparatory Theological Commission, so helping them prepare for the council, which didn't actually open until October of 1962. And then at the council itself, he was named a peritus, which is a fancy word that means expert. Mm-hmm. So he was a theological expert at the council. He helped with, he was a member of the theological commission, as well as a couple of the secretariats that were working on the various documents. Okay. So he was involved in, in some of that, especially Lumen Gentium and Gaudium et Spes is where he was most notably influential. Okay. So he is a theological expert, and there were a number of theological experts, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, when he, uh, as Joseph Ratzinger, was also a peritus, correct? Yes. And he's going to figure prominently in our discussion here of De Verbum. Now, for those who are uninitiated, what is De Verbum? De Verbum is the Second Vatican Council's dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. So that's like the Bible, right? No, not just the Bible. But it <laughs> uh, certainly treats the Bible. Um, that's yeah, important, so right? That's that. That's actually a, a big. Uh, that's a that's a major kind of point of um, divergence uh, in the preparation of the document. Correct. What was the genesis of De Verbum? So before the council started, you had a theological commit preparatory commission that created these preliminary drafts of texts so that they would be sort of what you would work off of for the council. And they were sent to the bishops ahead of time to have them give their feedback and what they thought needed to be scrapped um, or changed or amended in some way. 
And the draft on Revelation was called De Fontibus Revelationis, which is Latin for On the Sources of Revelation. Mm-hmm. And it received quite a bit of criticism. Um, one of the heaviest critics was then Father Joseph Ratzinger, who was a young professor at the University of Bonn in Germany. And he had developed a working relationship with Cardinal Frings, who was the Cardinal Archbishop of Cologne. Okay. And Cardinal Frings asked him to review these preparatory documents and give his feedback to Frings. And so Ratzinger criticized that document rather heavily, and part of it was even the title itself, The Sources of Revelation. And the reason Ratzinger criticized it was because he said, and I'll use fancy terms and then I'll explain them. Thank you. um, That it was confusing the order of ontology with the order of knowledge. And what that means is ontology is metaphysics or the order of causation. So what perceives what in the order of being, of existence? And the order of knowledge is the way that we know. And often those two orders work in reverse from one another. Hmm. Um, Causes precede effects, but we usually know causes through the effects. So we come to know things by considering the effects and working, reasoning back to the cause. Like we know that the wind is blowing because we see the leaves moving in the trees. Is that an example? Yes, it's an example. You see the effect, and then you reason back to figuring out what the cause of that effect is. And similarly, he argued that that Scripture and tradition are not the sources of revelation. Rather, God's self-communication, his revelation in history through his deeds and words, are the sources from which Scripture and tradition flow. So the, the order of being, the order of cause, is actually the exact opposite. Revelation is what springs forth Scripture and tradition, not the other way around. Okay, can I stop so, you there? So, Or maybe you were yeah. planning to explain this, but that seems like a fine theological point, but I'm anticipating that you're going to probably explain why this is foundational or fundamental to perhaps orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very important because what it says is that Scripture and tradition are the sources of our knowledge of Revelation. They are the means, as, as Dave Abram teaches in chapter 2, they are the means of the transmission of Revelation. I mean, they, they hand on Revelation. Right. But they are basically bearing witness to the Revelation that took place in history. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to give a couple of examples. Which is really more highly to be considered Revelation? Reading from Exodus, where you have Moses in front of the burning bush, and you're reading about that in Scripture, or Moses actually standing in front of the burning bush receiving the Word of God. Obviously the latter. Right. So, Or similarly, in the Gospels, we are reading about Jesus' words and deeds, but the apostles were actually there listening to Jesus and watching him (laughs) perform his miracles. Mm-hmm. So the revelate, revelation is God's revelation through his words and deeds in history, and then some of that was put into writing. Some of that was, you know, mm. um, professed through oral tradition, but we, we can't confuse the two. So we can't just say revelation is scripture or scripture is revelation. It's that revelation is 
not necessarily something you can just carry around in your pocket. It is actually God's action of revealing himself. And so you have to be able to differentiate theologically the revelation itself, God's divine action revealing himself to us, and the results of that action and the concretization of that action in Scripture and tradition. And so that doesn't downplay Scripture and tradition, but it helps put it in proper context. Correct. And it helps prevent one from getting to like a sola scriptura notion, for instance, where you know, divine revelation and Scripture are just are convertible terms, like they're as if they're equivalent, and, and they're not. Scripture bears witness to divine revelation, gives us access to what God has said and done in history, um, and obviously does so inerrantly and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But it's there has to be a distinction made between the two. I I want to ask you to elaborate some more on this uh, emphasis you put on the phrase in history. But before I do, I want to remind people we're mm-hmm. listening to Dr. Richard DeClue. We're talking about the documents Dave Erbum and Lumen Gentium from the Second Vatican Council. If you want to ask a question, call in 85-LOVE-RED-SEA, 855-683-7332. So you, you emphasize that they give witness to revelation in history. I think holding on to that also is important for, for us remembering that this isn't a, a fictional tale. It's not something that only exists on the page, but it actually happened. It's, it's a historical faith. We proclaim in the profession of faith that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. There's a, there's an important reason why we have that line in the, in the Nicene Creed. Right. Yes. It's very important to realize. So God reveals himself to us where we're at and where we live is in history. We are temporal beings. And so God is acting and speaking in history to humanity. Mm -hmm. And so that aspect of it can't be forgotten. It's just a necessary aspect of, I mean, he, in order to reveal himself to us, he has to reveal us in a way that we can receive it, and that's and that goes right into that goes right into a major point of teaching in De Verbum about the the dual authorship of Scripture, if I'm using the correct the correct term, and that that God reveals Himself through the through the idioms and language and circumstances of of the people and their and their time and place. Yes. Yes. So God is the primary author of sacred scripture, um, but he has employed human persons um, in the writing of scripture, and the Holy Spirit has inspired them to write um, that which he wished. But we don't understand that as like a court stenographer. Mm-hmm. It's, they're not just secretaries taking down dictations they too are considered to be true authors of sacred scripture. So he's, God is inspiring them, um, but they are still writing. They are involved in that process. And so it's God's the primary author, but the human authors are true authors. They're not just scribes. Right. And that's, that's also a very different understanding of revelation from say a Muslim understanding of how the Quran came, came to be because to my understanding, they would teach that Muhammad uh, acted more and acted as a, a court stenographer. He wrote down exactly what Allah said. Yeah, and it may even be that I think that he 
claimed that an angel handed him the Quran. Like it just literally plopped out. Mm, mm, okay. Um, that it had, yeah, so almost that it had preexisted in in heaven um, as a as a book. Right, and it was handed, handed to on him. as a book. Literally, God's the only author, and that's very different than our understanding of sacred scripture. So, our understanding of how of revelation, our understanding of scripture, um, that has that has important effects for our relationships with other world religions. Yes. Now, um, Richard, we were going a little bit off off on a tangent there. You mentioned we talked about uh, Henri de Lubac being a peritus. We talked about Joseph Ratzinger. Um, it, you made a point to me in our pre-conversation that it's very clear we can see what an important role Ratzinger played in the in the creation or the or the development of De Verbum. Explain that a little bit. Well, he was very influential because because he was he was an advisor to Cardinal Frings and also an official peritus at the council. Um, Cardinal Frings was one of the most senior cardinals at the council, which meant that because they spoke in order of seniority, he was one of the first to speak on any topic, and um, he was highly regarded throughout the world. And so he his words would have been listened to very carefully. And Ratzinger basically wrote all of his interventions, his mm. oral inf- interventions at the council. And so he had a tremendous impact in that regard. Um, on the eve of the council, meaning the, the night before it started, he also was invited to give a talk precisely on the on divine revelation to a, a gathering of German-speaking bishops and pointing out he, what he thought were the problems with the fontibus revelationis and giving his own ideas on on how to tackle divine revelation. One of the suggestions he gave was that there should be an opening chapter on divine revelation itself before the council talks about scripture and tradition. And that ended up being exactly what happened at the council. Oh, wow. So he's, he's speaking as an authority to the bishops. He's guiding Cardinal Frings and his criticisms of the... Um, the schema, and and then he, a chapter is is basically uh, his his suggestion, and, and it appears in the final document. Yes. Now there were other people making some similar remarks, so it it couldn't be traced back to him solely, um, but he obviously was a major part of that process, and he was on the drafting committee for Dei Verbum as well. Although I believe he was only involved directly with chapter, I think it was chapter six. Okay. Um, or, yeah. Um, but yes, he was highly influential. Before we move on to Lumen Gentium, talk about the reception of Dei Verbum. How ha- has it been received well? Has it, has it reshaped or, or reoriented Catholic understanding of Scripture, uh, Catholic scholarship on on scripture and, and revelation um, talk about that a little bit I think it has I think it um, in the last few decades especially I think you're seeing an uptick in good Catholic exegesis um, and theology because one of the things that it wanted was for theology in general so even systematic theology to be more 
imbued in sacred scripture and in the church fathers. And you're seeing some of that come to fruition. And I think you're, you're starting to see a, a better Catholic exegesis um, that's really following the principles of Dei Verbum. Um, now, as in any field, you can think of examples to the contrary, but I think it has enriched, it, especially, I think in general, just Catholics reading Scripture more. That's what I was going to say, number, yeah. Yeah, the number of Catholic Scripture studies that are now available. Right. And different editions of the Bible and study Bibles that are coming out that are very faithful to to the magisterium and its understanding of how to interpret sacred scripture. Yeah, there's there's no longer any hesitancy in Catholic culture of I'm reading the Bible on my on my own or I'm engaging in a I'm going to a Bible study. That's that's very much a part of our how we live out our faith now, I would say. Yes. Um, and so that's that's been a very positive lived effect of of Dei Verbum. Okay. Now the other document I wanted to have you give some commentary on this morning is Lumen Gentium. So, like we did for Lumen for Dei Verbum, what is Lumen Gentium basically? Yeah, so Lumen Gentium is the dogmatic constitution on the Church, and so it presents the Church's own self-understanding with regards to her origins, her nature, her structure, her mission. Um, so all of those elements, and it was very important because it sort of helped complement Vatican one. Mm, that's where I was going to go, going to go next. So continue. Yeah. Yeah. So Vatican one was held between 1869 and 1870. And it only issued two documents and it was meant to cover a lot more topics and issue many more documents, but the council was truncated because of the breakout of the Franco Prussian war. Mm -hmm. And so for instance, Vatican I is most well-known for dogmatically defining the dogma of papal infallibility. Right, right. But it had intended to create a, a constitution on the Church at large, and therefore would also talk about things like the role of the, the bishops. Mm -hmm. um, but it didn't get the opportunity to do that. And so in some ways, Vatican II picked up it reaffirms what Vatican I taught, but then also expands the teaching to cover a greater breadth of topics within what we call ecclesiology, which is theology of the church. Correct, correct. Now, something that you spoke at length about in our pre-conversation, and this is something that kind of I glanced over when when I was reading it. I didn't it didn't stand out to me was that Lumen Gentium addressed this this dispute going into the council of. Is the episcopacy, that is, is the order, the office of bishop, is that a higher level of holy orders, or is it simply a priest being given territorial jurisdiction? Why, why was that a dispute? What was the significance of that? How did Lumen Gentium resolve that question? Yeah, and I'm not entirely sure how contentious of a dispute it was, but it was sort of an open question. Okay, okay. And partly it had to do with the relationship between the priesthood and the Eucharist obviously being very close-knit, right? Right. So some theologians were of the opinion that with regards to the sacrament of holy orders, the priesthood was the apex because if you can confect the Eucharist, then how much higher can you get? Yeah. Um, so 
you know, a, any validly ordained priest can do that. So um, what, what else is there? And so they kind of understood Episcopal consecration as merely sort of installing a bishop over a diocese, being given the jurisdiction to exercise the sacred powers he already has by virtue of his priestly ordination. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go back in the history of the church, and even today, this is, is, this is the case, a priest is actually acting as a representative of the bishop when he celebrates the Eucharist. Mm. He's participating in the bishop's priesthood to do so, because mm. he's doing so under his direction, under his authority. That's why in the Roman canon, for instance, the, the bishop is named. Um, so if you ever listen ah. during the Eucharistic prayer, it mentions the name of the Pope and the name of the local bishop. And that's to show that this is being celebrated in communion with the local bishop. Right, right. Who has authority. So in some ways, the bishop presides even when he's not physically there. Ah. Um, and that's also because we understand the nature of the Church and the Eucharist to be, they go together. So the Church is... The Eucharist makes the Church as much as the Church makes the Eucharist. So we are the Church, we are the body of Christ by receiving the body of Christ. And so um, you'll actually notice that in some of the teachings of Lumen Gentium with respect to churches versus ecclesial communities. Right. And the fundamental distinction between a church and an ecclesial community is valid um, ordinations that enable valid celebration of the Eucharist. Um, particularly the episcopate, because a church has to be involved, have the episcopacy involved. Um, so, yeah, it's basically Lumen Gentium settled the question by stating that the the bishop, the the order of bishops is the fullness of the sacrament of holy orders, and so there are sacramental powers that are given to a bishop that a priest does not have. So, for instance, a priest can't ordain mm-hmm. anyone. Not, can't ordain a deacon or another priest. Mm-hmm. Only a bishop can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just because you need jurisdiction. So that's that's part of it. So but the, but that it affirms the. Mm-hmm. This this flows in right into something else that I thought was was fascinating talking to you beforehand, which is you you made this point about how Lumen Gentium uh, helps us to to understand that each diocese is the Catholic Church. It is the, f- the fullness of the, the, uni- the church universal in a particular place. I think we often lose sight of that as, w- as we go about living our, our Catholic lives. Right. This is a, an aspect of theology of the church that I think perhaps most Catholics are not actually aware of. We tend to think of dioceses as parts of the church, so we think of the Catholic Church as this one entity that is comprised of all these different parts that we call dioceses. And it's, it's understandable why we would think that way, and it's not entirely false, but it's also not entirely true. Mm-hmm. The, the way that the Catholic understanding of the, what we call the particular church, it's often called the local church. We normally use the term diocese, but a diocese is a particular church or a local church. Mm-hmm. Um, that the diocese or a particular church is the one church of Christ present in a given place with all of her essential elements. 
And so it's not just a part of a larger administrative organization. It is the church present here. And it's a very, it might seem somewhat esoteric to speak in those terms, but it's very important, um, especially regards to our sacramental understanding of what the church is. An analogy I like to use is the Eucharist. I think it's the most apt analogy to make, which is that every host in every tabernacle of the world is Jesus. Yes. So even though this host is not that host, this diocese is not that, that diocese, what they are is the same. And in some sense, who they are is the same, is the one Church of Christ here with all of her elements. And that includes having a bishop who is in union with Rome, as well as the celebration of the sacraments. Now, I want to I want to leave time for you to comment on the maybe one of the most controversial parts of Lumen Gentium, which is that phrase subsisted in. I believe it's in Lumen Gentium eight. But before I do that, mm-hmm. I want to remind the listeners we're list, we're talking with Dr. Richard DeClue about the Second Vatican Council. There's still a little bit of time to call in at eighty five Love Red Sea if you want to. Um, I was thinking about this. You know, so many of the chapters of Lumen Gentium, they, they wax very beautifully and they explain very magnificently the evangelical councils and the, um, the importance of the, the priesthood and the, the importance of the religious orders to the life of the church. And yet, the period after the Second Vatican Council, we see the collapse of religious orders in the United States. We see people, priests and religious women, leaving their vocations. We see a, a drying up of priestly vocations. Just asking you your own personal opinion, what, how do we account for that, that uh, paradox or that dichotomy, probably a better word? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to know. For Some sure. people might Not wonder that. Yeah, um, I'm not a sociologist, but I, there's a number of reasons. And one thing to keep in mind is that it's pretty standard in the history of the of the church that after a council, there's actually periods of disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like after the Council of Nicaea, which was the first ecumenical council in 325, that everything was was hunky dory and fine. Right. Um, the Arian heresy was still present. People still thought about this. Same. Same. Basil the Great actually talks about that, because he grew up in a period right after the um, Nicaea, and he says that you know people are arguing with one another, they're they're failing in the right doctrine of the faith either by excess or by failure, mm-hmm. so they're going to one extreme or the other in their interpretation of the council. Um, that's why further Christological councils were needed. Mm-hmm. You know, even after Ephesus in 431, we needed Chalcedon for. Sorry, in 431, we need Chalcedon in 451. Um, so it's not entirely unusual. Um, I think a lot of it is cultural, because shortly after Vatican II ended, which was in 1965, you really had this massive revolution, cultural revolution taking place around 1968. Yep. And you really had a huge amount of secularization. You had the... Um, birth control pills started coming out. You had all of these social factors that were leading to, you know, a general 
lack of faith in in, yeah. in culture. And you and you and, talked about how Ratzinger even recognized this already uh, in that uh, piece that he wrote called "The New Pagans in the Church," where you said he he was already critiquing uh, the preconciliar culture of the church, right? Yes, he was. It was in the 1950s. So he was anticipating uh, this my, problem. He was. He saw the writing on the wall. I mean, he, he used France as an example um, how, okay, it's the oldest daughter of the church. It's nominally Catholic, but most people in Germany, even if they you know, get baptized, even if they go to church, are actually pagan. Mm-hmm. They don't actually believe. It's, it's more of a facade. Mm-hmm. And he was concerned that this was becoming more and more the case. So people were being culturally Catholic, but they weren't being really, truly Catholic. Right. And so a lot of these problems started before the council. And then the revol- the cultural revolutions in the 19, late 1960s just really hit everyone. And also there was a lot of misrepresentation of the council. Correct. Correct. One thing people forget is that Vatican II was the first ecumenical council during the era of mass media. That's right. And any expert who has ever listened to any news outlet speak about their area of expertise knows how little you can trust news outlets to accurately <laughs> portray things. You know, you get a scientist reading something in the, in the New York Times or watching something on a, you know, public news for, you know, a network news channel. They're going to they're going to sigh and say, no, that was not right. Because you basically have journalists writing at an eighth grade level about things they're not educated in. Right. And so a lot of times things were being misrepresented. You also had a lot of speculation, just like we have now. People speculate about what might happen, what will happen. So while Vatican II was going on, you had a bunch of media outlets saying what certain theologians they would interview would claim they thought was going to happen at the council. And then even after the council, most most people still have not read the actual documents. Right. So, so all I think they that's a, back into is what they've heard. That's a good place to to switch you over to talk about this phrase subsisted in. What is it really mm-hmm. trying to say there? What is the church really trying to say with that with that part of Lumen Gentium? We got about three minutes. Okay. So essentially Lumen Gentium eight says that this one church of Christ subsists in the Catholic church. And some people were thought that that was replacing the word is meaning that somehow the council was no longer teaching that the church of Christ is the Catholic church. Um, But that's not true. And one reason we know that's not true is that the term subsisted in was suggested by a Jesuit named Sebastian Trump, who was actually a very traditional scholastic theologian and was Cardinal Ottaviani's um, right-hand man. And, and Ottaviani is considered one of the most traditional of the cardinals at yes. the council. Yes, and he is, was the head of what is now known as the CDF. Mm-hmm. So um, he actually recommended it because it's a scholastic phrasing. And it, he is also widely believed to have been the primary ghostwriter of the encyclical Mystici Corporis, which is where you have a strong emphasis on the Church of Christ saying it, it is the Catholic Church. Um, so he wrote both, mm. and he did not see them to be in conflict. The subsists in phrase was actually replacing the prior draft's use of a phrase that meant is present in, which was, was considered to be too weak. 
Uh-huh. So he suggested it to enhance the identification. But the word subsists in is a technical phrase because subsistence is a personal mode of being. And it includes both identity with a sense of integrity or completeness. So being the fullness of something as well as enduring over time to perdure over time. And we see this in the, in the writing of um, Pope St. Leo the Great in the fifth century. He talks about the church subsisting. You see it in the Baltimore Catechism, where it talks about how the church subsists in all ages. Um, and so it's, and the yeah. magisterium since then in um, Dominus Iesus, for instance, has clarified explicitly that the interpretation of subsist in cannot include the idea that it, the Church of Christ could subsist in other non-Catholic churches. Okay. Richard, I have to I have to stop you there because we're out of time, but I, I think you got us started in a good kernel of explanation for that controversial phrase. Uh, this will be on podcast, folks. Richard, thanks for having uh, being on, on with us. I'd like to have you back uh, sometime soon. And everyone, go out and have a beautiful Holy Week and a blessed Holy Easter. Talking, I'm